0: Praise the Lord. Thanks for being here this morning. Uh, We've been traveling through the book of 1 Corinthians, and I know we've got some guests with us, some that haven't been with us, uh, or maybe it's just a couple times been with us, and I didn't preach last week. And I just want to let you know, the series in 1 Corinthians, for me, has been a tremendous blessing. Uh, It's really been encouraging to cover some practical, some basic truths, and uh, it's been wonderful. Um, There's some things... Uh, that have been answered in my mind that i've questioned for years and uh, some hard topics and so the first corinthians is bringing some light into that and i think the light bulb has gone on for many of us and uh, and i just believe that the first corinthians was written to a, a group of leaders that were leading a church in the early church but it is not only for the church in corinth but it is for us and we need to embrace that. It's a vital to the church. It's vital to us as believers. And and uh, so I'm thankful for the journey that we've been on. When we came to First Corinthians chapter eight, um, we really began a series uh, or began a section of the scripture here that is easily skipped over for a variety of reasons. And one of the reasons is because there's two primary topics discussed, food sacrificed to idols, and can you eat the meat that's been sacrificed to idols, but the other is participating in idol worship or idol feasts, and it was a huge, hot topic for the church in Corinth. I can't underestimate how important it was for them to be unpacking that, and we've, we've talked about that at length over the past several messages, and so we won't do that this morning. But the second reason that a lot of people just skip over or read quickly and just keep on going is because there are some sections of 1 Corinthians that are tricky um, to understand. And unless you dig in a little deeper, for example, like this morning, chapter 10, verse 14 through 22, you, you might miss some of the context in that. Now, I want you to know for the Corinthian leader, they had determined in their mind that an idol was nothing. They would say, look, an idol, it doesn't matter who's been sacrificed, an idol is nothing. And they were absolutely right. Paul addressed that. But they took their liberty to eat food sacrificed to an idol, and then they believed, they took it a step further, that it was okay to go to the idol feast or go to the temples where the idols were worshipped. Now, for us, we don't address that in our lives. We, you know, I don't think any of us have eaten meat in the last you know, week or so probably that has been sacrificed to idols, at least that we're aware of, right? And, uh, but it's provided for us a great study on what to do in gray areas of our lives. Things that are not specifically mentioned in Scripture. And the last time we were together two weeks ago when I was preaching, uh, we, took the, we took the time to look at one verse, verse 14. And I want you to start there with me. Turn in your Bibles to... 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. And we looked at this, it was a clear and abrupt, uh, very, uh, very right in your face encouragement from Paul to the leaders. Look what it says. It says, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Everyone say, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. And what Paul is gonna say here is that it's one thing to eat meat from a butcher shop once offered to an idol. It's one thing to attend a party or go to someone's house or even a wedding or a feast uh, where the food was sacrificed to idols and you're sitting and you're you're eating, but it is something else to push it to the point when you are attending idol feasts, idol celebrations, pagan festivals, and those types of things. And today we're going to answer the question why a believer should avoid idolatry The idolatry of the world. Now, last time, like I said, we talked about idolatry in in particular. And we said, who or what is first in your life? And I'd ask you the same question today. Who or what is first? Can you say this morning that God is number one in your life? Because we said last time that idolatry is the most contagious or contaminating and serious sin there is. And it's because it strikes right at the character of God. And idolatry is subtle, it's sneaky, it pollutes us, it defiles us, and it comes in many shapes and sizes and can affect everything in our lives. We talked about this last time. And so today, we're going to take from verse 14, and we're going to see the bigger context, that there are three reasons to flee, to run for your life, to keep God number one. And here are the three reasons. That number one, idols... Replace our devotion to Christ. Number two, idols invoke the powers of darkness, and number three, idols provoke the jealousy of God. So I want you to turn with me to, or you're already there. First Corinthians chapter ten, verse fourteen. And I want you to stand with me, and we're going to read God's word. If you don't have a copy of God's word, there are copies on the back tables. You can grab one. I encourage you to be looking on and uh, to do that. Again, when we look at verse fourteen. The context here is that for Corinth there were incredible amounts of temples, idol temples. One of the most popular was the temple of Aphrodite, and uh, at those temples it was the place to be in town. Where fine foods were served, it was open air restaurants, a lot of sexuality going on. In fact, the temple of Aphrodite alone had hundreds of male and female prostitutes that were right there. And what's interesting when you read this, when we see this, many of the Corinthian Christians had once frequented those idol temples, they were idol worshipers, they got saved from that, and I want you to know also when we read this, that idolatry for today, we said last time, is anything that would seek to distract us from a full devotion to God. The list is endless, okay, I'll just give you a few. TV can become an idol, the internet, movies, literature, music, careers, right? our homes, our cars, travel, leisure, not to mention all of the sensuality stuff that can become idolatrous. And when I read this, I want you to think about that, especially in that first verse. Let's read it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we are all partake in one loaf. Verse 18, Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that the sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? no. But, I, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and drink the cu- de- uh, cup of demons as well. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Now I want to just pause here for a second. When you read that... When I've read this in the past, I just keep on going. But I want you to know, church, this morning, there is some incredible depth of uh, knowledge in here. Um, There's some insight that is meant for us today, for each and every one of us today. And I I just hope that the Lord will speak through me to pierce into our hearts. And so let's pray. Ask God to bless His Word and uh, let it just rest in our hearts and help it to change our lives, okay? Let's pray. Lord, we just honor you. We thank you for what you're doing. We thank you, God, that your word is all-powerful and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. God, that it pierces into our hearts and it can change us. And God, I pray that over these next few moments, God, that we would have ears to hear and hearts to receive. And God, I pray, Lord, that you just avoid um, any distraction from the enemy, but God, that we would be focused on you and you alone in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. By the way, everyone's looking good today. Uh, I love all your smiles. Isn't it fun in the summer to come and to worship? And uh, it's great to be here. And uh, I love, uh, love what I get to do. All right. This is fun. The first thing, the first reason we need to flee from idolatry is that it will replace our devotion to Christ. And let me try to explain this as we kind of get into this. We looked at verse 14. Verse 15 is interesting. It says, I speak to sensible people. He's saying, look, you guys are smart. I worked with you. I trained you. I invested in you. And you guys can get this, is what he's saying. He says, judge for yourselves what I say. He says, look, you can figure this out. This whole idolatry discussion, it's not ro- rocket science. And then what Paul does, he takes the next few verses to talk about the Lord's Supper. And in some ways, you think, what, why the Lord's Supper? You can call it communion or the Eucharist, which is a fancy word for the name blessing or for a, uh, the Greek word blessing. And by the way, it's an important spiritual part of our walk with the Lord. And today, we're going to partake in communion at the end of the service. But communion, and what Paul does is he brings an attention, uh, focuses it on Jesus, And he says in a very real way that when we partake in communion, we also participate with Christ and with everyone else that is taking or partaking at that time. You say, well, what are we talking about? Well, the issue for them, the point was, is that they were going to idol feasts. And the same was true, that when you would participate in an idol feast, a pagan festival, That those people would become one with the one being worshipped, the spirit behind the festival, and with those that were worshipping. You became one with them. Let's look at it in verse 16. So, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? On first look, you say, boy, what does that mean? Well, let me break it down. The first is there is talking about the cup of thanksgiving. This goes back to the, the Passover feast, that there was a whole lot of ritual, and within that there were many times a series of cups or a series of times that they would drink. Well, this refers most likely to the third cup in the, fastover, in the Passover feast, where they would call that cup the cup of blessing or the cup of thanksgiving. And it's very interesting and in Mark, or I'm sorry, Matthew 26, Jesus, he blessed those elements at that time. He stood, and, uh, and it was from that moment that we focus not on the Passover, on the exodus coming out of Egypt, but now when we take communion, we focus on the sacrifice of Christ primarily. And uh, that, there was a, f- a fundamental shift in Matthew chapter 26 at that point. But the point is, when we partake in the cup, What's happening? That's what we want to see. Because it's more than a symbolic or just this element that we hold. There is a spiritual reality taking place. One commentator kind of described it like this. It's looking at a picture of someone that you loved that maybe has passed. Maybe a loved, a loved one. Maybe a, a family member, a, a grandma or grandpa or aunt or uncle or maybe even a spouse. And you, when you look at the picture of the person that has passed, what happens? It's not just a picture. Our minds become engaged. Our memory is activated. It's flooded with memories. And the picture becomes alive to us. You know what I'm saying? And with the cup, when we hold the cup or when we hold the bread, what happens is Jesus becomes alive to us. He becomes actualized in our hearts and in our minds. Now what happens is we begin to think about what happened at Jesus' death. We remember the cross. We remember the six hours. We remember the separation of God when God said, no, uh, I can't look at my son anymore. It all starts to come back when we hold those elements. We remember the darkness, the three hours where the sun was covered and uh, there was darkness over the land. We remember when Jesus cried out, it is finished. We remember the spear that was placed in Jesus' side, where blood and water flowed. It's a living reality of that moment. And by the way, when it uses that word "blood of Christ" in there, in verse sixteen, there, the Jews and the and the, the Gentiles there, they in that culture, they recognized when it said the blood of Christ that there was a violent death there. And all those memories were right on the forefront of their mind. I would say everything that Jesus did for us at Calvary floods our mind when we hold those elements, the cup. And what about the, the bread as well? It says that the bread was broken for us, right? And we're participating in that. There's, and what's interesting about that is uh, that, there's, that we are united with the body of Christ. And it speaks of the humanity of Christ, that Jesus, our high priest, was pure. And for 33 years, he was tempted and did not sin. He was fully human, and we can relate to that when we hold the body in our hands. As I was studying this, I learned something this week, that I've often said the body that was broken, that Jesus' body was broken for us. How many have heard that before? Well, what's interesting is in John 19, 36, it says that not one of the bones of, God, of Jesus was broken. And so when it says that the, it was broken, the bread was broken, uh, I realized that that was for more distri- distribution purposes, that Jesus' body was not broken. But the big point there is that Jesus, his body was a substitute for my body. I was the one. You were the one that should have been beaten and bruised and nailed to the cross, and so when we hold those symbols—the body, the blood, the cup, the bread—right, they're more than just symbols. In both uh, phrases, there the word participation or the word fellowship. Maybe in your Bible comes from the word koinonia. Maybe you've heard that a coming together. In what we see and what Paul is recognizing, what he's reminding the Corinthian believers is that we literally are fellowshipping with Jesus, and with others, the ones that we are connected with. Now, I want to pause for a second. So just like the Lord's Supper, that there's a union with Christ and a union with others, right? And you guys tracking with me, you get that? The same thing happens when we fall into idolatry. There's a union with something or someone other than Jesus, okay? Okay? And so our minds are engaged, our bodies are engaged, and beca- therefore idolatry replaces our devotion with Jesus. We said last time in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, that you cannot serve both God and money, right? We looked at that verse, and we said that you can put on the second part of that verse, you can't serve God and anything. You fill in the blank. You can't do it. If you do, you've become an idolater. And so we've got to be very, very careful careful and so we don't want anything to come in between because we we will connect with the spirit behind it and we'll connect with the people that are participating in that and we'll talk about that a little bit more but i've got some time this morning i want to take a quick side note because uh, when we look at matthew chapter 26 we see jesus stand up and he he holds up the cup and the wine at that point he says this is my blood Right, and then he says, "This is my body." And there are some traditions that believe that when we partake in communion, that the, the juice or the wine or in the bread be, actually become the elements of Christ. And I don't believe that's true. I don't see that in Scripture. In fact, it's impossible scientifically. Um, but you say, "Oh, could it happen spiritually or supernaturally?" And I would say, "Yes, I believe that is a possibility. God could do anything." But what I understand as I study this is that the Jews and the disciples for sure would have been completely repulsed by the idea of drinking literal blood. All right, And they would have been, their thoughts would have went right back to Leviticus, chapter 17, verse 10 through 14. And, uh, and they, would have, they would have never thought that the actual wine turned into it, but it was just a symbolic, it was a joining with Christ and with those that were communing with them. There's another time Jesus uh, uh, stood up and said, Hey, um, I am the door. And I don't think the disciples thought, Oh, yeah, three by six, wood door. Yeah, that's Jesus. Right, and so same idea Um, in that term that some use in uh, 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 some denominations or traditions, it's called transubstantiation, and uh, I don't think uh, Scripture warrants it. We talked about that on um, on Wednesday night in our connect. Uh, 101 class and so it was fresh on my mind but anyway um but the idea here is that look idolatry will replace our devotion with jesus and the idea continues in verse 17 let's continue it says because there is one loaf (laughs) okay we who are many are one body for we all partake in one loaf there's one body church one loaf and that loaf is jesus jesus christ and what he's talking about is really a unity issue here—that there's a joining together with Christ, with everyone that's partaking at that moment. And a little later in chapter eleven, we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper in uh, in bigger, uh, in a broader stroke. And because the Corinthians were abusing some of the liberties, and it was affecting their communion, the Lord's Supper. And what was interesting, it was causing division. And we'll get to that in chapter eleven. And uh, uh, but we see that. And then in verse 18, it says, Consider the people of Israel. Paul continues. He says, Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? And again, we go back to the Old Testament way. Before Jesus was, was uh, crucified on the cross and He became the ultimate sacrifice for us, there was a lamb or an animal that was sacrificed in place of you or me or for the people there and it's what happened they would bring that oftentimes to the temple some of it was burned on the altar some the priests would eat that's how the priests were supported and had a livelihood and then um, then those that were worshiping those that brought the lamb they would eat and partake and what's interesting it was all in the presence of God right but they were all together as well all right so the first reason is that we it will cause division or it will cause uh, your devotion to Jesus to suffer when you get caught up in idolatry. There's a second reason. The second reason is this. It invokes the powers of darkness. You're saying, okay, what do you mean? Well, let's look at it in verse 19. Very interesting verse here. It says, do I mean that uh, a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? And Paul's already addressed this. He's re- just reminding them of this. And he answers the question at the early part of verse 20. He says, No. And what I want you to know, guys, is that th- this is important that Mohammed or Buddha or Hare Krishna or any other God that you might, might have heard of, these are not gods. There is only one true God, Yahweh God. And he answers the question. He says, No. And so you say, well, what are those people worshiping? Listen, in verse 20, he answers the question, are these, uh, does this mean that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to participate with demons. What he's saying is that they're actually offered to demons. Now, this is hard to understand unless you dig in a little bit. So what was happening is that there would be idols, they'd be worshiping, they would sacrifice something, but there was no God there. I want you to be crystal clear. And Paul recognizes that, and he explains basically that demons could impersonate or act like a god. Have you ever wondered why people take a rock and worship it, or a stick or a log, or a gold statue, and they worship it, and sometimes for years and years and years, maybe for a lifetime. Have you ever wondered? He's saying, okay, what does that rock do? Well, Paul gets a hold of that idea because people believe that there's a God, and there's something behind the scenes at work. There's enough supernatural from the demonic that impersonates a real God, the God, that keeps people coming back to those things over and over. say, well, we don't really deal with that, do we? Well, I think we might. Astrology, worshiping the stars, people that read their horoscopes or play with Ouija boards or tarot cards or call up the psychic or whatever. These things, what happens is that there's a demonic, a satanic um, uh, uh, background and it can hook people and it's very, very scary. And the point for the Corinthians was, look, Eating the meat at those temples was nothing less than celebrating in the powers of darkness. Does that make sense? They were flirting with the edge. I think they had gone over the edge. Paul is saying, they, they, he's saying, look, you can't do this. And today you say, oh, well, we don't have to worry about that. We don't have idle temples. Well, there are temples that do kind of pop up, mosques and, and maybe Hindu temple or different things like that. But what I want you to see for you and for me is that when we go or when we do what the world does, we participate with demons. Look at it four times in three verses. And the point is is that you cannot participate, that koinonia, in godless activities without being or becoming one with the people that you're associating with. And I realize that this, that's a hard thing to swallow sometimes. But we need to be careful, and we need to understand this to be able to walk and to be able to see God continue to work in our lives. You say, well, what kind of things are you talking about? Well, there's a couple that came to mind as I was praying, and, and I'm not picking on these couple things. There are We could probably list you know, a dozen or more. But, but things like this, going to the bar, okay? Now, when you sit and participate, Drinking, sharing stories, whatever the case might be. You are becoming one with the people that you're with. You're communing with them. And I believe that many times in those situations, there are powers of darkness at work. You say, well, I've got liberty. I, you know, the Bible doesn't say you can't drink alcohol. And we're not here to uh, discuss that. But the truth is, is that many times, the powers that are at work behind the scenes are very, very real. How about going to a casino Or how about this, when it's music and maybe a secular rock concert, you say, oh, it's just entertainment, right? Well, listen, when you go and you participate in those types of situations, you are joining yourself in a very real way, according to Paul here, with the spirit behind it and with the people that you're with. And I would say that any place where the spirit of the age is dominated, that can happen. Now, I know what some of you are saying. You guys, you know, you're, you know, you're talking crazy now, <laughs> right? Well, listen, here's an example in my own life. Growing up, I didn't understand this, and, uh, and I'm not here to debate whether you should allow your kids to do this or not. And, uh, but listen, when I was growing up, I was not allowed to go to dances, okay? I just wasn't. I wasn't allowed to go to homecoming. I wasn't allowed to go uh, to, you know, any of the dances at, at my school. I went to secular school, or, uh, um, yeah, secular school. Because there was a social part, uh, the music was ungodly, uh, ungodly activities, suggestive sexual type things happening. and uh, and I think I better understand now. but w- what I think my parents understood, and for us that was the rule and that's we lived by that, is because there is a sense that you become one with those that you're participating with and what is being worshipped behind the scenes. You say, well nothing's being worshipped, it's innocent. Well, That may be the case, and I understand that. But listen, the warning is extremely real. Look at verse 21, what it says. It says, you cannot, and that's not a cannot like uh, it's an impossibility. It's a should not, but it's a strong. So it's you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. And you cannot have part in the Lord's table and in the the table of demons. And you put your own activity in there, whatever the case might be, going to movies or office parties or internet, whatever the case might be, and you would say, okay, well, if I can't do this and serve God, or I shouldn't do that, what, what about that? Well, listen, I think it affects us at certain levels. And some of us are more sensitive to others. And I know in the bigger context here is about Christian liberty, and we're not here to discuss whether any of those things are right or wrong in this context. But listen, I wonder why sometimes we come to a worship house like this, to a sanctuary, and we worship at times with very little passion. Could it be that many of us are invoking the powers of darkness in our lives, in our activities and in our thoughts or why our lives may seem to just be in a fog and we can't get any traction or maybe there's a lack of excitement about the things of God and you're just going through the motions listen idolatry is subtle it's sneaky and you say man it should be simple right well it's not these are gray areas and I'm not here, to again, to argue about any of these things, but Paul, what he's saying is that often there is a satanic influence or a control in the world, and we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. And we are called to be set apart. We talked about that at Connect 101 on Wednesday night, that we are called to be sanctified. That means to, to continually be being set apart. And, and you know what happens? You hear that this morning, and you say, boy, you know that sounds good for some, but, but I don't really want to be different from others. Well, I would just say, get over it. <laughs> you already are different. If you've accepted Jesus in your heart, the Bible says that you are a peculiar people. And it really answers sometimes, because if you have a believer in your home, and, and maybe you feel like you're on the outside at times, and we've struggled with that even in our own family. Listen, we're different, and that is okay. Church, don't become one with unbelievers. Don't commune. Be separate. Be separate. So the question is, why should a believer avoid these things in the world? Not to touch the things of the world. And in regards to this particular point, it's because you cannot commune with God and commune with demons at the same time. There's a third reason that we'll see. Let's look at it in verse 22. In verse 22, it wraps up the section with the question. says, are you trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And what's interesting here is that we see, once again, that idolatry is absolutely offensive to the Lord. And I don't want to stir up God. I don't want you to stir up God. And what we see here is that he is jealous for us. You say jealous? how, How is that possible? Well, listen, his love is so intense that he becomes angry if anything threatens that love. He loves us. I was reading about this in uh, John MacArthur's commentary. He says, Do you want to make the Lord jealous? And I love what he says. He refers to Deuteronomy 32, 21. This is God talking. They have stirred me, God, to jealousy with what is a no God. They have provoked me, God again, with their idols. John MacArthur says, you want to stir God to jealousy? You better be stronger than he, or you won't be able to handle him because he deals very strongly with idolatry. All you've got to do is read the Bible about that, he says. You just turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7, and you might want to write these down. Deuteronomy chapter 16, Deuteronomy 17, Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah 44, or just read Revelation 14, 21 or 22, and there are inferences in all those places about the vengeance of God against idols and idol worship. And he finishes his thoughts here. He says, the only way you'll ever want to provoke God to jealousy, which is what we're talking about, is if you're stronger than he is. And that's ridiculous. It's laughable. And then he says, it is offensive to the Lord to participate in these ways. Church, this is crystal clear in my mind. He says, you don't want to go up against God. No one here would say, yeah, I'll take God on, right? Bring it on, God. No, He's stronger than us. And He loves us, but could it be that the struggles that you're facing, the issues that you're up against, could it be that without maybe even knowing, you're fighting against God? And as I was praying and meditating about that, I believe... The Lord gave me a word for us, for me, for us to get our minds around. And, the, and I wrote it here, I highlighted circled it in my notes, is that the Lord, He loves you. Just let that sit in for a second. He loves you, incredible, more than you could ever imagine. But the things that you're doing, and maybe it's because you think you've got all this Christian liberty or this Christian freedom, But the things you are doing are repulsive to him. And I don't want to add anything to that, but I want to read it again. The Lord loves you, but the things you're doing are repulsive. And I say that out of love, and we'll come back to that in just a second. But there's one other verse I want everyone to turn to, to Revelation chapter 2. This is incredible. As you read Revelation 2, the church of Pergamum, Here is a story. There's incredible parallels between 1 Corinthians chapter 10, or 8 through 11, 1, really, and then Pergamum. Listen to what it says. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now listen, what's happening here in Pergamum is that there was a group of believers that loved the Lord, I believe. They called on the name of Jesus. They were believers. But listen to what happened to the believers. Nevertheless, verse 14, I have a few things against you. And listen to the parallels here between 1 Corinthians and, and, and Revelation here. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. They're, they're teaching about idols. Who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. Again, there, there's people in the midst that are, that are flirting with the edge, that are, that are going down that road on that slippery slope. It says, likewise, you have also those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Again, An idol. An idol god. The Nicolaitans were heavily influenced with sexuality. And what does he say to them? What What is he saying to the church? Verse 16, you might want to underline it, highlight it. Repent, therefore. And listen to this. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against you. We just talked about, do you want to fight? Are you stronger than God? Right? I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Church, the sin of Pergamum was a sin of compromise. And again, it is subtle, it's sneaky, it, we don't even realize that it's happening in a lot of cases. But Paul was clear with the first Corinthians. He says, run from it. Run from it. Flee. As fast as you can. And Revelation says a little clearer. It says, Repent. Ask for forgiveness. Be sanctified. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for all that you're doing here this morning. God, I thank you that we have an opportunity to be together, to experience all that you have for us, and help your word just to be very clear to us in these moments as we partake in your communion. In the Lord's Supper, God, I pray that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship the Lord together.